Welcome to the Managing Violence Podcast, helping to make communities safer by providing education in how to prevent, prepare, respond, and recover from violence in all its forms. Your host is an expert in violence and aggression management. Here is Joe Saunders. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Managing Violence podcast. Thank you for all those that express concern as my home country is currently on fire. It is uh, pretty devastating down here. I am thankfully mostly unaffected. There's fire all around us here in Melbourne, uh, throughout the state of Victoria, New South Wales, in Queensland, South Australia. Uh, there are fires all over the country, uh, Tasmania, WA as well. Uh, it is uh, pretty horrific. Uh, we've lost a lot of wildlife, people's homes, a few lives have been lost, including firefighters. Uh, I do encourage you, please, if you are in a position to do so, please donate to the relevant charities. There are a lot going around that are trying to raise money uh, for victims, for wildlife and for recovery of the towns that are affected. But uh, for on a personal note, um, other than a little bit of uh, a little bit of smoke and some irritation in that regard. Uh, we are completely unfazed and uh, very, very lucky uh, compared to many. So thank you for your concern. And as a small gesture from the Managing Violence podcast, any donation that is received through Patreon uh, up until the time the fire crisis is over will be donated to fire charities. So if you've considered supporting us on Patreon, jump on uh Every single cent that comes through Patreon will go to fire recovery efforts until the fire crisis is over. So uh, we, we appreciate your support for the podcast and for the country. And of course, if you do wish to donate, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash managing violence, patreon.com slash managing violence. Moving on, uh, today we have an episode with the return of our most downloaded guest, Mr. Tony Blower, uh, and Tony will be on speaking about uh, his passion for self-defense and for personal safety, and uh, more to the point, we're going to be getting into scenario replication training or role-play training uh, and how to do that properly and how to do that safely. So uh, Tony was one of the first to really popularize this type of training in self-defense, and uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Tony Blower. Hey, Tony, thanks for joining us on the show again. It's great to have you back. Uh, your first episode was the highest rated episode we've ever had. Uh, so I was itching to get you back for a second go around, and I appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no, man, I'm flattered and honored. I was excited. And, and when, you, when you let me know, you know, I was like, wow. I mean, I, I never think of it in terms of like analytics and stuff like that, but that was very flattering. So very grateful. You're you're a figure that is so well known in this community, uh, in the in the violence management, violence prevention community. That uh, I think people are always anxious to sort of uh, hear from the source. I mean, you know, we've we've talked a lot offline. I mean, you're you're a polarizing figure, but that's that comes with the territory of being uh, probably the most recognizable name in the industry. So um, it's yeah, it's it's good from a look. It's good from a podcast host point of view because uh, right. well, tune in to to hear what Tony's got to say. <laughs> So <laughs> I appreciate it. Right, right. Are they, are they going to bring up this this time? Or yeah, no, I get it. Uh, I, I think, get, listen, I, think uh, I, 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 we'll uh, do that episode uh, at, a, at a time when it's not Christmas. <laughs> right, right. No, but I, 
you know, I was, I was telling you before, you know, when we were just logging on and talking like, like I'm 59 and I've been doing this for 43 years and I still wake up the other, about a week or so ago, I, I woke up about five in the morning and rewrote the entire uh, lesson plan for our SPEAR program for 2020. I mean, just, just saw it in my mind and, and grabbed the app that I used to take notes and just wrote it out in like, I mean, it was just, and the reason I'm bringing that up is uh, I am as passionate about the art and science of self-defense today as I was when I got the bug in uh, in the 70s. Yeah, that's actually interesting. It's not what we plan to talk about, but I think it's, hell, why, why not just call it on the fly? Um, do, do you think, as, how has it evolved for you? Like, I mean, your initial passion, I guess, was was determining what the, what the reality was behind the difference between what you're doing as a martial artist and the reality of violence. Has that sort of a passion evolved and, and, and morphed over the years? No, it's interesting because, you know, uh, and, and this is actually new. I wrote a post um, a few weeks ago and uh, another pretty well-known podcaster, uh, Marcus Aurelius Anderson, um, made a comment. And I, in, in the story that I was sharing was, you know, this time that I was, I was playing baseball and I don't know if I talked about it in our first show, but I got jumped by two guys from high school that were a couple of years older than me. And you know, when you're 12 years old and kids are like, I think they were probably around 15, that's a big size difference. And, you know, they jumped me as I was leaving the elementary school and uh, beat me up. And I got home and I wasn't hurt. I was more scared. And I said to my dad, I just got jumped. And, you know, he looked at me because I didn't have any marks on me. And he said, and he made some joke, probably like, did they hit you with pillows or something? And uh, I said, no, this is serious. They said, you know, hey, you know, welcome to high school. And I was scared, like, is this going to happen in high school? And, and he basically said to me, you got to learn to defend yourself. You know, we got to find your martial arts school. And uh, about six months later, a Taekwondo school opened up about a mile or two from, from where I lived. But what was interesting, it had never occurred to me, and I was explaining this story in an Instagram post, and this guy, uh, Marcus, commented, he said, I'm grateful that those two guys jumped you because, you know, that day helped change, you know, the trajectory of self-defense, something like that. And, and you know, he had, he had studied my stuff from... What's that? One of those butterfly effect moments. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting because I was, you know, a highly competitive skier and I made, I made the joke right away online. I answered, I said, you know, if I hadn't been jumped, maybe I'd be like selling skis in Switzerland right now. But like, who knows? Like, you know, that, that the moment I started doing martial arts, there was something so centering for me. And I knew like, this was it. This is, I was, it was, it was, you know, what, what they call like in the talent code ignition, you know, there was a moment I went in there, started doing stuff. And I was like, I want to do this the rest of my life. And then the story that I, I've been telling people for years on podcasts is, you know, when my mom asked me, what are you gonna do when you're older and it's 15? I said, oh, I'm gonna be, you know, she said, are, you know, you, what are you gonna study in school? Or are you gonna go into the family business? And 
you know, I, I know I shared this in our, in our first call, but I, you know, I said, Hey mom, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a famous martial artist like Bruce Lee. I can have my own martial arts, you know, self-defense program. And she pat me on the head and say, okay, dear, we'll talk about this when you're older. And, um, you know, so I've been telling that story for years. It, I never told the 12 year old story. And now I'm like going, oh my God, like that was really the moment. Like that was really that butterfly effect moment that had that not happened, I would have never signed up for, you know, Taekwondo. And the story I was telling from when I was 15 would never have happened. So truly a butterfly effect story. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. I think, I think we all, um, with a little bit of introspection, we find those moments in our lives that, you know, they, they seemed unpleasant or, or <laughs> negative in some way. And, but they, they shape where we go next, and uh, and that can uh, that can lead to great things uh, if you if you're the right person for the right job. So, well, I think every I think everyone has that. I just I you know it, it obviously becomes something you look back at more and and study or analyze if you end up doing something that gets you noticed in life. You know, uh, and and if you look at anybody's job, whether it's a, a doctor, a nurse, a cop, a firefighter, a, a, a secret agent, a football player, I mean, everybody has a moment where they go, I remember watching this athlete and when he, you know, won the title and he was holding the trophy over his head and I went, oh my God, what's, and that's when I got, you know, like everyone's got that, everyone has that story if they look for it. Yeah, absolutely. And how did that evolve as you, I mean, obviously you, you got to a point where you built a system that was, uh, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, it was fit for purpose. It was, it was a leading system in the world and uh, for, for self-defense and for, you know, be able to transmit serious skills and concepts in a, in a short period of time. Uh, how did that, uh, you know, what, what kept you going to, to keep pushing and to, to keep evolving the system and to keep improving upon it? I think, you know, Probably um, some people laugh, some people won't. Uh, you know, my, my, there was no OCD back then, but, but I was uh, like, I just wanted everything to be right. And I remember, you know, one story that I did share was, was, you know, when it was very much like, you know, when Bruce Lee had that Wong Jack man fight and he beat him easily, but notice he was out of breath. So immediately started studying, you know, aerobic conditioning, right? It was like, I was like that. If, if I did, if I did something and, and I missed the bag a certain way and, and I, I got frustrated. I'd go, well, why, why did that happen? If, uh, uh, if I hyperextended my elbow, you know, I was like, okay, how do, how do I, how do I make that never happen again? You know, pain is the mother of invention. Uh, um, if a student came in and said this happened and I felt this and I did that, I like, I would always use any type of feedback as impetus or some sort of stimulus to like go deeper, you know? And it wasn't that I thought that, that, there was a system that was going to cover everything and answer everything, but it was really just part of my personality. Uh, um, if you ask somebody who knows me, does Tony overthink when they'd stop laughing, they go like, what do you mean? Like, like, because I'm always like, okay, should we do this? Should we do this? Let's try this drill. Let's do, um, 
I'm just obsessed, literally obsessed with getting it right. At the, at the same time, remember, I'm also, that brain also created the off-balance principle where one day it occurred to me that we are off-balance all the time physically, emotionally, psychologically during real violence. Nobody's in a good stance. Nobody's in a perfect position. And, and so I created this idea that we need to practice being off balance on purpose because if we practice off balance on purpose in training and we are off balance in the real world, there'll be synchronicity there. And something in our brain will go, okay, we've done this before. We can get through this. Where if you practiced always in a perfect stance, always with perfect conditions and then the imperfect conditions present themselves in the real world whether it could be ring cage street uh violent encounter um you get much more uh, emotional psychological distraction and as as i've uh, pointed out many times that's really where the fighters won or lost it's not the you know on game day it's not like oh, i should have done more push-ups or i should have done more bag work on game day you look at anybody trained or untrained and what you actually see is a, uh, you know, a malfunction of the emotional psychological system. Yeah. And actually, uh, that, that whole idea of uh, fighting from an off balance position, uh, I think back to Chuck Liddell and one of the things that made Chuck so dangerous was his ability to generate power from positions where it didn't look like he was in, he was loaded up for a power shot and he was, his ability to knock someone out while moving backwards or, to, or at, a, at an unconventional angle made him incredibly dangerous and, and no one really wanted to pursue him in the cage because you can never really be sure when you're, when you're in safety. Right. And that, you know, that was Chuck as a intuitive street fighter who also uh, grew up um, sparring much older, stronger men. So he developed like a tenacity. Uh, and if you know his background, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it was atypical. And, uh, and, and you could see the difference in, you know, many, most of the people that he fought were, were on balance and, you know, he had that, that, that ability to move at, like you said, these like unorthodox angles and that'll always, I always used to make this joke, you know, when you spar with your wife or your girlfriend, how they would hit you with any shot because their the, the syncopation of their movement was so bizarre that your nervous system couldn't time when to slip or block. They would come in, you know, if I sparred, I remember sparring, uh, you know, which is now my wife, but my, my girlfriend in gloves and she, you know, we'd be giggling and she would just like drill me in the fucking face with shots because they didn't come from a boxing stance. They, yeah. they came from some weird hand position and she'd start to move and it would be like, I don't know if you remember Elaine dancing on the Seinfeld episodes. Yes. You ever saw yeah. that episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'd be like, like that. Oh, when's this going to, Oh shit. I just got hit, you know? So it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a funny thing, but it's, you know, it's all part of that, that is understanding and appreciate the, appreciating the neuroscience of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting actually just to uh, parallel sport a little bit. Um, Travis Stevens is a Olympic uh, medalist in judo. Uh, who's also a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and has competed a little bit in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, he, um, he said that if, if he's fighting a Brazilian jiu-jitsu player, he'll nearly always pull guard rather than going for the takedown, even though he's one of the best takedown artists in the world. Because the Brazilian jiu-jitsu players, their movement is not what he's trained to deal with. He's, he's, they're so um, amateurish in their ability to, 
to react to, to judo attacks, that all his feints and his setups don't work because they don't react the way a trained fighter should uh, when he's you know, throwing a feint or of, a, of a particular throw. And therefore, they end up in an awkward position or the timing's off. And he says, it's just too much work. He'd rather pull the guard and just fight Brazilian jiu-jitsu because <laughs> trying, trying to get these high-level jiu-jitsu guys to fall for his judo throws is just not working for him. And I thought that's it's, it's really fascinating. I've had the same experience right. as, as a predominantly a judo guy competing in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You know, my old faithful combinations just didn't work because they didn't respond to the first attack the way I expected them to. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like you say, that unorthodox um, movement can... Uh, can work to your advantage if you if you train it, or even if you you are you don't realize you're training it, you just develop it. But uh, let's let's move on to the the actual topic of the day. So, well, so the brain, you know, yeah, let's do okay. it. Okay, cool. So, uh, what we wanted to, what I was sort of uh, flagged with you early on after we had our first conversation was uh, more of a deep dive into scenario training, and uh, I guess probably the the history of how you grew to embrace scenario replication uh, and then I guess moving on from there, how we, how we end up making that safe uh, and productive because uh, we, we know it can go pear-shaped. But let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. So I remember in the first show you, t- you told the story of um, you know, hitting boards at, at different angles or a shove in the back followed by turning around and hitting the board. So how did that evolve into, into real scenario replication for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I was fascinated by um just i just wouldn't know if it would work in a real confrontation and i obsessed about it and so just to recap for anybody who didn't hear that but I, you know you know i i'm breaking boards and then it's all suddenly i've got the thought that goes in my head well you know and and you know of course a huge bruce lee fan boards don't hit back i'm thinking well this is great you know i've got uh, one of my students holding the boards for me the boards are, they're dead wood. You know, it's not like I'm punching a tree. It's, it's not moving. It's right there. I can see the grain. I said, okay, that's a good punch. I went through two boards, three boards, four boards, whatever it was. But I was like, so big deal. How can I make this more realistic? And then what I did was, was uh, you know, I turned around and, and had my student like, you know, shove me or grab my shoulder and then immediately get back in position. So I would turn and then start throwing the punch as I was turning, as I picked up the threat in the corner of my eye, like just turned into a scenario. And uh, just that idea made, you know, made sense to me. And I started, you know, like doing things like that. That wasn't very practical. I think I broke my, my hand on one of those attempts and, and uh, it just, but I was always looking at everything asking i was asked the question why are we doing this why are we practicing this and you know of course that's very popular now with simon sinek you know with you know what's your why but i don't know if people remember you might remember this uh but you know 1986 or 88 uh uh one of those years i came out with an article in inside karate magazine and the title was a word to the wise but wise was spelt w-h-y-s yeah and so and so my and the reason I bring that up is because like like Sinek's message of of why, know know your why is so deep and so profound and so elegant and eloquent in the way he explains it. Um, and it's true. Everyone needs to know their why. Why are you practicing? Why are you doing something? Because when you find that, you'll find your flow. And for me, 
that was always super, super clear. My, my purpose, my focus was always on, you know, could I protect myself? This obsession with understanding it from a self-defense perspective. So I might get fascinated with a skill set. And I'll give you an example, like, like, uh, 1993, I'm in Coronado, uh, working with, uh, uh, the, um, Naval special warfare with an element down there. And we're doing a bunch of drills and I'm showing them these close quarter drills where, you know, we're, we're you know, using, uh, long guns and weapon systems and multiple sail. And then one of the guys in the class says, this is a cool move, but will it work with our body armor on? Will it work when we're in full kit? And I said, well, how far, how far is your body armor? You know, and, and um, we had just to be clear is we were wearing equipment doing the drills, but we didn't have any of their ceramic plates in which, which, you know, made the, the, the vests, you know, much more uh, ballistic uh, uh, protection. And so these ceramic plates weren't in there. And, you know, when you put them in, you're, which how you can bend dramatically changes. And how I tie this together for you, Joe, is this, is I said, I wonder if this will work on our plates. And I said, well, how far are the plates? They said, well, it would take us five minutes to get them. They're in another room locked up there. I said, well, let's go get them. We put the plates in and sure enough, they restricted some of the movement enough in the torso that the move that I had created for them didn't work anymore. And like, I didn't, I didn't go, well, are these regulation and maybe it, it's only good for tall. And there was no bullshit. I went, oops. Okay. Well, fuck. I'm glad we like, you know, evaluated that here guys. Let's stop practicing that move. Like in the, in the flow of what we were doing, everyone was digging it. And then one guy said, will this work with the plates? We tested it. Didn't work. We stopped doing it. So my, the reason I bring that up is, is it's really also a good like metaphor for, personal accountability, professional accountability, accountability, where we do these things, we practice these things. And if you were the guide, the mentor, the leader, the coach, the trainer, and you're suggesting that this is practical, but you're not evaluating it safely and scientifically, uh, then people might leave there overconfident. And, and you're trained, like had we never had that discussion, that them learning that pattern and that program and that movement might have compromised uh, uh, a mission or somebody's safety or somebody's life. And that's how serious I always took this stuff. So anything that I practice, I, I would pressure test and, and I would really try to understand and really try to evaluate, could I look in front of a class regardless of gender experience or background and say, here's a really good drill to practice. We think it's going to enhance your safety. Yeah. I think being able to uh, incorporate gear and, and, and realistic conditions, I think is so important and it's something that was missing from at least on the civilian side uh, for so long. Um, we, we, we drilled martial arts in martial arts uniforms in nice pristine dojos with hardwood floors or mats or whatever, whatever it was. And uh, if anyone did any self-defense at all, it was usually against a, a martial arts style attack. It wasn't against untrained attack. But one of the things that I found most interesting and in, in digging back through the history of 
uh, I guess, your history as it pertains to self-defense, was you one of, the, one of the first people to really dive deep into the behavioral, emotional, and psychological aspects uh, of, of uh, self-defense or violence, and not only have an understanding of that, but then incorporate that into drills. So are you able to expand upon how that process unfolds for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in the 80s, you remember the original story, my student losing his fight in school, you know, he's 15 and, you know, the whole bully thing there. And in that moment, people have to listen to first episode to hear the whole story. But in that moment, when he lost and he told me the story, I felt like I had let him down. I didn't blame him. I didn't say, well, you, you shouldn't compromise your hands. You're standing too close or, Hey, you, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And like, you know, you know, get back up on the horse, man, or whatever max I wanted to throw at him. I knew in that moment that there was something wrong with the way I had prepared him. But I also knew that how I prepared him was how everyone prepares because I was passing on everything that I had absorbed being a voracious reader, studying, training with whoever I could. And I wasn't do, at that at that point there, you know, it's funny, it was, it was about 13 years before the first UFC, but what we were doing is I had a wrestling background. I loved boxing and I'd done Taekwondo. And of course I was a Bruce Lee junkie. So I was teaching him mixed martial art, even though there was no name for that. Right. And there were lots of guys doing that. I mean, that was the origins of, 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 you know, you know, Kempo from Hawaii and stuff like that. They were blending all sorts of stuff. And I'm sure there was, you know, convergent elements all over the world, but we were just calling it different things. But my whole thing was, and, and it was interesting because in talking to other people in the early 80s, when I, I would say, hey, this happened to my student, most of them blame the student. If I talk to another well-known instructor in Montreal, I go, hey, this happened to my student students if that had happened to one of your guys you know what would you have said and i got different answers that were always strategic or tactical like uh, um errors that were made none of them said well we're teaching people wrong i think that a lot of people see violence as consensual and that's why i differentiate between a street fight and a violent encounter a street fight is consensual it's illegal it's immoral it's unethical and I call it a douchebag fight where, you know, you, you don't need to do that. And people send me videos and links to this stuff all the time. And I don't post them. I don't, I just go, that's not a, that's not a real self-defense. You know, there's one going around viral of two guys arguing and then a guy gets stabbed in the stomach and bleeds out. And, you know, the guy pulls out like a, a like a 10 inch carving knife in, and, and stabs him. And I go, and they're like, what do you mean? That's not self-defense. That's two douchebags fighting. And one guy's a knife and one guy doesn't. And neither one of them had to be there. And you could see that. That wasn't a, an abduction. It wasn't a, a robbery, you know, gone bad. It wasn't a, a home invasion gone mad. You know, that was just douchebag fight. So I always had this element of conscience, accountability, ethics, and morals in everything that I did. Um, and, and that might be the reason I'm so polarizing is because I would just tell people, like, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think there's any evidence of that. And let's pressure test it. Let's do that. Let's try to make that move happen. And then, you know, of course, I only developed high gear in 1993 after five years of prototyping and testing it. Before that, we were just like Frankenstein, you know, like just putting on different pieces of equipment. And But we'd, we would 
we would do one-on-ones and two-on-ones and four-on-twos and six-on-ones and and videotape all sorts of shit. And you almost couldn't, like if you replicated the real event, you almost couldn't make anything happen that you thought was going to happen. And we actually went through, and that was, that was part of my, that was part of the crucible, man, is um, we would say to experienced people, you got three guys in front of you there. They want your wallet. What are some of the things you think you would pull off? Like people write down on an index card. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll hit the guy here. I'll hit this guy with an uppercut. I'll sweep the leg, whatever the hell I'm making jokes now. And then when it happened, you know, we go, well, what happened there? And it was like, fuck man, that was so different. That was, you know, and so these, these experiments became real truth filters. And, you know, you asked me, you said, I was one of the, 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 the first guys to incorporate the behavioral and the emotional. To be honest, and I'm biting my tongue here, what made me introduce it is because I couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah, it's a... They were... They no were people, right, you know. Um, and so there was something in my, in my conscience and my intuition that was saying... How come nobody's talking about fear? And how come he's talking about like de-escalating here? And how come he's going to be trying to diffuse this? And why does the why does everything start from the fight? There's one very famous uh, martial artist who had a book out, and he's talking about scenario training in it, multiple sale and stuff. And he describes the drill, and everyone starts the drill. They've got boxing gloves on. There's a picture in in this book that he had released. And he's got like, you know, three guys surrounded one guy and they're all in boxing stances at the same distance apart, you know, all, you know, Orthodox or Southpaw forward. Everyone's in a boxing stance, everyone has gloves on and they're doing, and he's describing, we're doing scenario training, multiple assailant. And I would look at that and go, no, that's, that's kickboxing against three people. I'm not saying that that's easy, um, but that's not scenario training, right? I would look at, real altercations and incidents that I'd have. I remember uh, before road rage, you know, became a thing, accidentally cutting some guy off was in my blind spot. And uh, he, um, uh, I, I hear we pull up the light. I've forgotten about it. I did that thing, you know, when you cut somebody off and they give you the finger and honk. And I, I gestured with my hand like, oh shit, sorry, man, I didn't see you. But I keep going ahead. I've forgotten about it you know, about a quarter mile up the street, you know, I hit a light, there's a car in front of me and I hear brakes and I, I, I hit and I hear tires chirp and I look up and I see this guy jumping out of his car and he's running like he's three cars behind me and he's running toward, and I like, and I like, I just knew it was him. It was just like, I couldn't see his car, but I, like I heard it and I knew like, it was just my, that intuition. I saw the door open and I see him running towards me. I'm like, fuck. And I'm trapped in the car. So I jump out. You know, my window's down. It was summertime. And he's on a dead tear. And I jump out of the car. And, you know, we collide. And next thing we know, we're like, like in this freaking god-awful clinch rolling around on the, you know, off the, the side and trunk of my car. And people jumped. And people back then, people tried to break up fights. They didn't film stuff. Of course, there were no... There were no yeah, even phones. people are much more used um, and right, and they're pulling us apart and everything. And I remember like going, like fuck, you know, no good wrestling. Didn't get a punch off. No time to kick. Uh, 
because as soon as I got out of the car, he was like on me and I yeah. just like ran right into him, you know? So, but it was like, you know, my heart was racing after and I was like, like that tunnel vision. I was like, what the fuck was that? And how did I not pick up on any of that? And it was like, where was all my martial arts and all it was like, it was crazy. And so like, those were the, you know, you know, in interviewing people and talking to them, I discovered this, and this has been consistent for decades now. You got people who tell you every detail in their real violent encounter. And I knew they were full of shit. Yeah, you know, like, and then I saw this and everything went into slow motion. And then I swept his leg here. When he went down, I grabbed this guy here. And then I grabbed, and I'm like, I don't remember the first several seconds of any fight I've ever been in. Like in terms of the clarity of movement. I might remember like I was sitting here and then all of a sudden I realized, fuck, you know, like, but, you know, and I would meet these people and, and the more people that I, I interviewed and remember I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. What I was trying to do is, and I also understood this, this was weird too, is I remember in the eighties, somebody saying, Hey, I know like some pretty crazy rough bars that we could go into and you guaranteed you can have a fight you look at somebody the wrong way. And like people looking at me with crazy eyes going, we should do that. And I'm like, no, no, we shouldn't do that. That's stupid. And they're like, well, why? How else are you going to test this stuff? And I knew right away, and I said this many times over the year, that if you get into a fight on purpose, it's because part of you knows you can beat this guy. And therefore, that's not self-defense. And that makes it illegal, immoral, unethical, and bullshit in terms of your test. Because the real test is if you're scared and you can make stuff work. Not if you're lining somebody up to sucker punch them. And there's a lot of, and, and I want to go deep on this for a moment because there's a lot of advertising coming out again. And there was the TRS ads back in the day where people would talk about, hey, learn from so-and-so. He's had 600 street fights. And I would people would ask me, what do you think of this guy? I go, look, I don't want to take a self-defense lesson from a guy who's had 600 street fights because street fighting is not self-defense. They are psychologically, ethically, legally, completely different. There's something completely going on in your mind that's completely different than, you know, you going out and looking for a fight. And so when you're looking for a fight, or if I say to you, Joe, to get to your next level in my street fighting art, you got to get into a fight Friday night and you got to have a witness. So get back to me on that. You, if you believe that bullshit, you would go to a bar and you would either consciously or unconsciously pick somebody that you thought you could beat. You would never consciously or unconsciously pick somebody who you thought might kill you or maim you or put you in a hospital. Yeah, it's exactly. just not the way yeah, the, you, you'll, you'll the survival system right? works. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll make sure you're not drinking, you're paying attention, you're situationally aware, and you'll look for the guy that you think is an easy one to rile up that you've got a chance yeah. of beating because there's, a, there's an objective. And uh, yeah. Listen, I, 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 I tell the story of uh, when I was down at Fort Bragg working with some military groups, and I got in a couple of days early. I don't remember if I told him the first one, but, it, but it, it, it connects to this. And one of the guys on Saturday says, hey, do you want to go jumping? And I said, like, up and down? He goes, ha, ha, no, skydiving. I said, no, thanks, man. I'm good. I don't like jumping out of an airplane. And he goes, uh, hey, I thought you're Mr. Fear Management. And I said, I am. I'm managing my fear by not jumping out of the airplane. So him and his buddies <laughs> laugh. And I go, 
I go, hey, are you, are you afraid of skydiving? He says, no, I do it every time I can. I got over 600 jumps. I said, well, there's guys on your, on your unit that don't like skydiving, but they do it anyhow to stay qualified so they could deploy on your missions and train, correct? He goes, yeah. I said, so that's the difference. If, if you're not afraid of it, then you don't understand the fear management element of that. And I always tell people, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. You cannot be brave if you're not afraid. I said, I don't want to take a skydiving lesson from somebody who's an adrenaline junkie. I want to take a skydiving lesson from somebody who, like me, is afraid of skydiving, but recognizes I got to do it. And as a side note, I have jumped on an airplane twice as a fear management experiment. But, but this connection, I was telling you, like, you know, you got these guys now, hey, so-and-so's a SWAT cop and he's been in 12 MMA fights and he's been in 90 street fights and now he's got the latest greatest self-defense program he's not teaching you self-defense he's teaching you street fighting and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want to learn but somebody who likes to fight probably can't teach you what you want to know about self-defense and avoiding violence which is why I always tell people two things one I don't teach you how to fight I teach you how to not fight but I teach you when somebody crosses a line how to protect yourself, how to be your own bodyguard. That, even though my language right now is so much more polished than it was in the 80s and 90s, that was always kind of like, like, like the mantra. And, and I remember in, in the 80s, um, late 80s and early 90s, talking to like a woman's group saying, do like I remember early eighties saying, how many of you have life insurance? And they all put their hand up, all these moms. I said, how many of you have life extension insurance? And they're like, what's that? I go, that's your ability to protect yourself. You need to learn, you know, how to, how to detect and avoid situations. And if push comes to shove, how to protect yourself. And when the whole be your own bodyguard thing, but I would always make this joke about life extension insurance. Cause it was a, people go, what is that? And I'd say self-defense, you know, so I always, I always had that filter where I would look at that and go, you know, and now I, like I tell people, you know, when I'm talking at tactical conferences and consulting for, you know, whether it's a military or law enforcement program, and I go, listen, like everything is fun to practice, but you've got limited training time, limited budgets, limited interest. Like everyone who works at your police department or in your military group, that like they're not professional fighters in the mono a mano sense, so they're not going to train two three times a day like somebody who's like a like a like a full time MMA fighter. So, like, is this? I would, I I came up with this uh, concept, wrote an article on it called "Probable versus Possible," that everything's possible, but not everything's probable. So, what's probably going to happen, and let's work on that. You know, so all the filters were, were, were always there. And you asked me like, you know, like what, what spawned this whole behavioral, emotional, psychological thing. It was because it wasn't there. Everyone always started with the physical. And we even like a few years back, I Googled the definition for self-defense and you know, the worldwide dictionary, most of them describe it as the physical act of protecting your property or your your life. So even the dictionary, if you if you peel the onion and 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 look at what it's implying, is the the attack has already happened, 
and now you're fighting to protect your property or your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, it's yeah. So, so it, there's no, there, like the, the world's definition of self-defense doesn't even include behavioral, emotional, uh, situational awareness. And so in our stuff, you know, like way back, and you could look at this 1986, when I came out with the Panther productions videos, the first videotape was called cerebral self-defense. And in that, in 1986, when we recorded it, had detect, diffuse, defend, detect and avoid, defuse and deescalate. And if push comes to shove, defend, be your own bodyguard. Um, and we changed about two years ago. I said, you know, I'm going to rewrite the definition in one day hopefully in my lifetime so I could see it. Uh, when people ask what's the definition, definition of self-defense, they will say the decision to choose safety when danger is imminent. The decision to choose safety when danger is imminent. And that means what that does is if I get a bad feeling about a person, place, or thing, that I am going to choose safety. And that the safety moment there that's going to be determined through our three eyes, instincts, intuition, and intelligence. And that is going to mean I'm going to absent myself, get the hell out of there, or barricade myself, or maybe I got to charge the threat. But it, it, it gives us, it, what it's doing is it's educating the neuroscience in your brain, the reticular activating system, uh, and, and teaching the, the uh, limbic system, the amygdala, the reptilian brain, and your executive function, cognitive brain, to work together. And that's what's really missing um and hopefully that made sense is so we every every person trained or untrained gets a bad feeling before shit's about to fucking go down and everyone around the world confirms this in in different words they'll say yeah i knew something was wrong i had a bad feeling i knew i was about to get attacked mm -hmm. you ask a cop i knew he was going to fight i knew he was going to resist i knew he was going to run and so people get this feeling well what is it that is your reptilian brain that's your intuition and instincts speaking to you but because yeah, we don't build that into the whole training protocol you know so that's uh that's the long and short of it the behavioral emotional psychological was there it was such a it was such an obvious void for me that i began that journey in the 80s trying to trying to fill in the blanks yeah that's really interesting um as you said uh, we we sometimes see these uh yeah, self-defense has been taught as this purely reactive thing where you're already in a really bad position and you've got to fight your way out of it when, when real self-defense is not being in that position in the first place. Um, I, uh, I remember teaching a seminar years ago and uh, at the end we had a bit of a Q&A and &A and uh, someone asked me, what would you do if you got hit by a baseball bat? I said, I'd probably fucking bleed and die. I don't know, man. <laughs> I've already been hit. Like it's, right. I'm not sure right. what's going to happen after that. Uh, why, why was the guy that close to me with a bat? <laughs> Why right. did I miss that? Um, so what yeah, a strange question. I know, right? It's like a, it's, so, sometimes you can tell a lot about where people's heads are at by what questions they ask. Um, but uh, you know, I see this, and this is probably a, a decent, you know, short topic is um, common mistakes people make when trying to introduce scenario replication into their training or into their existing martial arts program. I've seen a seen a few where you've got you know someone mounted on top of somebody with a knife and the the defender has to escape it's like what what a shitty position to start in i mean it, all you're doing is programming failure at that point there's no way that person's going to get out of there without being stabbed so why program failed reps uh, you need to um you need to give them a chance <laughs> like that you have to program some positivity or some some chance of success in the drill i think 
Um, but you, for your observation, like, what are some of the common mistakes you see? Yeah, so in fairness to the example you gave, if that's where it started and that was the scope of it, and I see, and I see that a lot and it's not explained, so that might be it. And if that was, that's no different than, you know, starting in a headlock. And I always talk about that. It's like, you know, if you had a choice to intercept the headlock and, and, and stop it there or get out of the headlock and, and try to defend it there, which would you pick? You know, obviously intercepting it would be way safer and it's more consistent with everything I just talked about in my last little rant. So there's a lot of people who start from the physical because that's where they truly, they're not, they're not malicious. That's just where they, they, that's where they've been taught. And now they're just trying to get creative. Um, you look at most knife programs. If we're in a knife class, the drill start with, you know, like, like the dynamic alive drill start with a knife in your hands. And now you may be like sparring with the knife and you're, you know, you got like marking, uh, uh, you know, you got uh, chalk or, or ink and you're seeing who gets cut and you would turn them into these games. Uh, and individually, if they're part of a cumulative effect, they all have value. It's when you're leaving out other stuff, like you're leaving out elements of D1, D2, D3. That's why, that's why like the three Ds is, is possibly the most important thing when you say like, what is, what is missing or common flaws is people start just the physical and they start, you know, they'll say things like, Hey, you know, head on a swivel, situational awareness. Okay. Grab your knife. Guy's got a knife uh, in your back. Here's what you should do. And you're like, okay, just skip D1, D2. And just went right to not even just a D3, but holy shit, D3. So, so you're right if that's where they're starting. And so you, you want to kind of have a checklist. Like if you're going to go camping, are you going to go on a trip? Are you going to go, okay, do I have a map? Do I know where we're going? Do I have gas? Is the car loaded? You know, do I need a weapon here? Do I need a permit here? Do I need my passport here? Whatever it is, what's your checklist? So there's a, there, there, there should be a scenario uh, checklist that you that you run through, and you know, I'm not going to give people my checklist. Obviously, I want them to come to my seminar, but I will tell you this: use the three Ds: detect, defuse, defend. Like, are you talking about and building into your training elements that cover what, what if you're using our methodology? D one situational awareness: detect and avoid. Are you also practicing avoiding? Like do the students or does your class get reps in avoidance? So when I'm teaching somebody, well, the exciting part is, okay, I got high gear on and I headbutted the guy twice and then I got out of the room. Like everyone wants to get to there, but I make people practice the avoidance part. So they actually get actual reps of D1 and then they get actual reps of D2 some of these strategies in the science and psychology of de-escalation. So they're actually practicing that as well, right? And then they actually get reps of D3. And we will break that down, Joe, uh, into um, uh, preemptive anticipatory moves. Uh, and we'll also have it be more reactive, primal to protective. So we practice both, both ways. So what's, what's happening? So your brain is like a hard drive computer. And every rep you don't do is a, a void in, in, your, in your data bank. And every rep you do is something there. If you improve your perception speed, you decrease your reaction 
in time. How do you improve perception speed? By having a recording of it, right? So if I say to you, uh, hey man, uh, I'm gonna come over for a drink, you know, uh, do you have any, any whiskey, any Jack Daniels, any vodka? You know, you may get up and go look at your home bar or you see it in your brain. You look in your brain and you go, okay, what do I have? What do I have here? Do I need that? And you kind of scan through. So your brain records all these things. Well, if you're doing, uh, here's another uh, three-letter um, uh, share for you guys. Realistic, relevant, and rigorous. I call the three R's. Realistic, relevant, and rigorous. So your scenarios should run through the formula of, of D1, D2, D3, and they should be realistic. What does that mean? That means they're not stylized. You could actually look at that and go, if we took the gear off and we put this between two cars or in an elevator, or in a stairwell, in a garage, would somebody call the cops, right? Does it look realistic? Even if it's in slow motion, even if you have no equipment, is your movement realistic? Yeah. Is it relevant, right? Hmm. Relevant is the next one. And so... Uh, um, you know, and, and realistic and relevant can be confused, but they're, they're part of the same evolution and then rigorous ultimately. Um, and you, and if you don't have the right equipment, you can't do rigorous scenarios. You're just going to get, you're going to get hurt, but you can still, you know, mess around with it. The most important thing is improve perception speed, decrease reaction time. And you do that by replicating what you're going to do. This is a thing that, that messes people up is the biggest, biggest mistake. Well, there's three big ones, ego, ego, ego. The three big ones are ego, ego, ego. That's where I see people get hurt. That's where I see people get pissed. That's why I see people lose uh, uh, focus and control. When we're role playing, I tell people, listen, there's a good guy and a bad guy. If we're doing a two person role play, two person scenario, both people are role players. Cause I'm going to say to the good guy, this is where you lose the fight. And he's like, well, but I didn't, you know, I don't want to lose a fight. Yeah, but yeah. I'm going to have you lose this fight because you're going to work from this deficit position and you're going to understand what it's like to be scared and out of breath. And that's going to inspire you to respect D1 more. You tracking that, Joe? It's like, yeah. like if we always, if we always, and a lot of people, they don't lose, you know, they don't get that. And I go, listen, you're going to have to work from the worst case position. And then as we do iteration after iteration, you start to intercept it more and more. Um, and so when we do a full-blown uh, uh, ballistic microfight high gear seminar, we'll actually use CCTV, violent encounters. Somewhere uh, people lose their life in a violent encounter. We replicate that first over and over again until we can as a group collectively intelligently emotionally go that's what that person was thinking and feeling there so i might put you in gear joe and go this person just got grabbed thrown to the ground kicked in the head eight times and 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 was was robbed and ended up dying from head injuries and you're going to be that person for two or four or six or eight or ten reps and then we're going to talk about that. And you're going to say things like that was the scariest fucking shit after. Cause I know that person died because we saw the video and we look at people, we go, that's the penalty of inaction inaction spelled I N A C T I O N not doing anything. 
being on your phone at the wrong time, texting, headphones in at the wrong time, thinking you live in a bubble. But this can also happen, Joe, by starting all your scenarios at the wrong time, tracking everybody. If all my scenarios start with me in a headlock or me being choked or me being tackled, what we've discovered through research over decades is that you lose the fight on the way to the fight, the boxer, the MMA guy, the point fighter. It's the, it's the walk there where you're in your head. And so that walk is short during sudden violence. I turn around from an ATM, I'm walking to my car, I open the door because I you know, think it's somebody trick-or-treating and all of a sudden I'm getting punched in the face. It's in that moment where I'm going, holy shit, and my reptilian brain you know, hijacks, again, executive function. Executive function, cognitive brain, was what I was telling myself I would do whenever I was going to be attacked. So the scenario training is really the missing component. And most people that I've seen, and they're not malicious, but they're, what they've done is they put on some equipment and they've picked up where most of the, you know, regular, uh, more choreographed self-defense ended. And now they're just putting on gear and starting there. And really for the complete emotional, psychological experience, you want to have a story told. And so remember the three R's, realistic, uh, relevant, and rigorous. And then the three D's, is it going through detect, defuse, defend? And so uh, this cumulative process, we we'll tie this back to neural pathways, is every time you do a rep, your brain records it. It's got a memory of it. And then the more reps you do, the better your, your anticipation gets for what's happening next because it sees all these lines. And, and uh, that improves your re reaction time. And so when you're, you're doing the scenarios, if I say to you, Joe, let yourself get attacked here. Okay, this time intercepted. Okay, at the first moment you pick up any danger in the role player here, you, I want you to intercept this. This time, this go right towards. And you're doing all these different reps your conscience and accountability is is choosing what is optimal based on the scenario and the distance and the timing and so on and so forth. And we'll do things where imagine this. I, I, I have you do like like 20, 30 reps and you're in gear and you're doing the middle of the room. And then I move you closer to a doorway, Joe. And I go, Joe, look where you are. You're standing right by the doorway, this one foot this way and you're out in a hallway and you're out of here. But four feet in there is where the bad guy is. And now the confrontation starts. What do you do? Well, from doing, like think of Pavlov's dog, right? That bell just rang. You want to go fight because you're in gear and you signed up for a scenario, of course. But what should you fucking do as a good Samaritan? Yeah, exactly. Out the door. At those layers, yeah. Right? And so, so what's interesting, if you're really visualizing this, is we're teaching people to have conscience and accountability. We're teaching them to behave like good humans and make the decision based on the scenario. So I go, Joe, you're right by the door here. And there's a guy 10 feet away from you calling you out. Just leave. Now I go, Joe, same scenario again. And he's threatening you. But this time your wife and your kid are behind him. And he's not letting them leave this room. Now what do you do? Right? So you, you can change... You can do all your physical training you want, and then you change the emotional and psychological values, and everything changes.
it's a fascinating experience. Absolutely. Look, I know we're we're running short on time because it's uh, it's your wife's birthday where you are. It's Christmas Eve where I am. So, uh, one thing I just wanted to touch on before we finish, um, your high gear was really, um, you know, it was an evolution in the in the, in the field. Um, prior to that, as you said, we're all using Frankenstein suits or we're using a uh, you know, combination of you know, a baseball chest plate with a ho- ice hockey helmet and some cricket gloves or whatever, and then and then. Uh, there was the red gear, uh, sorry, red man suit, which was very bulky and, and restrictive in movement. Whereas high gear was really the first um, custom built uh, suit that allowed full movement and, and, and proper scenario replication. So that's probably one of the, uh, the biggest challenges when organizations, uh, especially, especially we're talking about you know, organizations that are putting staff through this sort of training is, uh, is protecting against injury and, and making sure that everyone's fit to go to work the next morning. Um, so do you just want to speak a little bit about the, the development of high gear and uh, yeah, I'll let you get, give a bit of a plug about where people can get it and, uh, and the benefits of it uh, as, as we're wrapping up. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. So high gear was a labor of love. It took me five years to, um, to put together. Uh, I remember I was teaching a seminar in Nashville in 1988 and I drew a picture of it on, uh, on a napkin uh, talking to my buddy, I said, one day I'm going to build a suit that looks like this and I'm going to make it like it's going to be counterintuitive. I'm going to make it as streamlined as possible so the role players can move real speed, real dynamically. Um, and uh, before that, there was only Fist and Red Man. And I said, as good as those suits are, they're too bulky because the the role player can't move like a real bad guy. So the uh, <coughs> the the target you're going to hit isn't going to be there in a real fight. The arm you want to grab is going to feel like that. Uh, your proximity sense is distorted. The, 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 the role player is going to move slower. And, and I need something that's just like really ergonomic and, and allow people to move real time, real speed. Took us five years. We finally put it out there. Uh, my first client was Naval Special Warfare. Uh, and, and we've got some units and agencies that have like a hundred suits, more, more suits. Um, us army bought 7,800 to support their combatives program in 2009. And, and so the, like everyone, like if you're really into self-defense, you should be using the high gear suit. There are, uh, some copies out there. Uh, there was actually a company in Australia that, um, was so cool. Uh, and I forget who it was right now, but it was back almost 15 years ago. He calls me up. He says, uh, he says, Hey man, um, I just got to order the gear from you. I was going to try and reverse engineer it, but, uh, I bought a suit. We cut it open. And he said, there's like over 500 parts inside of it. And I was like, this is bullshit. I'm not going to try and figure out how to do this. And it was like really funny. I laughed. I was like, I was like, wow. He said, good job building that man. You know, and that, that was the five years, different types of impact reduction foam, um, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and there's a, you know, of course there's a, a copy came out of Japan, not Japan, sorry, Germany. Um, and then, uh, and of course everyone knows the famous copy out of Canada, but the, uh, the, the, the thing about it is this, if you are doing any type of scenario training, the ability to actually headbutt your partner multiple times while you finesse the angle, the timing of that, or to throw an elbow, or to fall on the ground, or bump into something, and know the gear is going to take it. It's it's indispensable. It's it's like Bruce Lee said, you can't learn to swim standing on a beach. 
And, and so this is like the high gears adding the water to your, your swimming. Uh, it allows you to like, you know, get in there and dive in. If we stay with the water pun for a moment, um, there's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you a really good link that's got a lot of our videos on there and, uh, and, and show you that, you know, the how to, um, but it's, it's really changed the game for, you know, we've got some of the world's top MMA guys have used it from Frank Mir to Uriah Faber to BJ Penn. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, Randy Couture brought it on the first ultimate fighter, you know, uh, us army using it hundreds and hundreds of agencies around, uh, you know, the world. And a lot of times, you know, you asked about keeping people safe. A lot of times the, They'll just get, you know, two, four, six, eight suits. And it's the instructors that are using them and the students that are defending, but the instructors have them on. So it depends on how you design your, your scenario training and, and build it from there. It's also for, um, um, uh, for those of you that are like small school or you're just training in your garage, you can also buy the gear modularly. Like you can just buy a couple of helmets or chest guard helmet or, you know, part of a suit. Uh, ultimately, you know, just, you know, eventually get a full suit if you're doing full on scenarios. So it depends what you want to use it for. But we've got a really good page on my website. If you just go to Blauer Spear, B-L-A-U-E-R-S-P-E-A-R, and you just look at the navigation, there's, there's a, a couple of pages that have all the info you want. And, um, and yeah, I would uh, I appreciate the shout out, man. No worries at all, man. I'll let you get back to your, your wife's very special day. And, uh, and uh, I'll go thank my kids for being quiet in the background for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> they were great. And all my, and all my, and all my kids were great uh, uh, too in the background and my, and my wife. Yeah. I gotta, gotta go attend to her. Um, so um, no, this was, this was great, man. And, and I, I, I hope we covered, you know, you know, what you want to cover, you know, the big thing is, listen, if anybody out there is teaching self-defense, if anyone out there is advertising, Hey, we teach self-defense the the magic about, about what I shared with you. And listen, we have, you could not like me, you could not like spear, but high gear cuts through all the politics and all of the, all of the, the bullshit. You can pressure test, you can be doing wushu, tai chi, jujitsu, aikido, whatever you want. Get a couple of suits and set up a scenario based on D1, D2, D3, RRR, realistic, relevant, uh, rigorous, and just say, okay, you know, you're standing at the bar here, you're doing this. Um, there's more to it than that, but what you find out in the uh, pseudo safety of your dojo, or your garage, or your basement is like those 19 moves that you thought you were going to pull off. That didn't happen. And you may find that you're like Bruce Lee discovered, holy shit, my aerobic capacity sucks. And, and I wasn't breathing for like a minute and a half until I got to, you know, uh, uh, like a good position where I could make the guy tap or, you know, simulate knocking him out, grounding and pounding him or whatever it was. Um, but uh, it's a game changer. And, and I, truly encourage you to uh, uh look into it and and uh research it awesome thank you so much for your time again tony really appreciate it i look forward to doing it again in the future yeah let's do another one appreciate it joe have a great okay. one all right thanks tony are you a fan of the show and would like it to keep going 
head on over to www.patreon.com slash managingviolence and become a contributor. All money raised on Patreon goes directly into improving the quality of the show. Are you interested in booking Joe to speak at your club, school, company, or event? Joe is an experienced keynote speaker and trainer and available for bookings at all relevant events. Thank you once again to Tony Blauer for a fascinating conversation. Uh, and uh, as a heads up, this was the last episode that was recorded on my old recording gear. So we've uh, received a very generous sponsorship from Risk to Solution. Uh, and uh, with that sponsorship, we now have some new tech. So uh, I'm pretty excited. You'll, you'll probably notice that the intro and the outro uh, have been recorded a little bit more smoothly with a little bit better quality sound, and that's because uh, it's been recorded on the new gear. So uh, next next week, we have a new sponsor and also new sound. So please sign in. Uh, please please uh, tune in, rather. <laughs> please tune in uh, for the next episode when that drops. Now, if you have missed the announcements uh, this week on our social media, then what are you doing? Why are you not following us on social media? Why haven't you hit subscribe? Why haven't you got notifications every time that we post something? Because you are missing out, my friend. But uh, if you have missed out, uh, let's let's assume that you uh, you've done a tech detox over the Christmas New Year period, and you haven't uh, you haven't uh, seen the notifications. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. We have two new podcasts starting in 2020. The first one is the Presilience Podcast. The Presilience Podcast is a corporate initiative uh, from my employers uh, at uh, Risk to Solution, and uh, we are going to be tackling all manner of corporate risk management, enterprise risk management concerns. There will be some overlap with the Managing Violence Podcast because one of the things that I do focus on is occupational violence and aggression, workplace violence. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about occupational health and safety, security, fire safety. Uh, risk culture, uh, all sorts of different topics relating to the corporate end of uh, risk management. So if you're interested in that side, please head over to the Presilience podcast and hit subscribe on that one. Secondly, uh, coming up in late January, uh, I'll be launching my personal second podcast, which is Primed by Joe Saunders. Primed by Joe Saunders. And that allows me to interview a whole bunch of really interesting people that help you improve your capacity to deal with anything life may throw at you, even if it isn't related to violence. So one of my passions is making ordinary people extraordinary. And uh, we'll be talking about all sorts of topics like improving your memory, uh, surviving a terrorist attack, what to do in a, in a, uh, a natural disaster, uh, maybe uh, how, to, how to improve your public speaking skills, uh, how, how to uh, be more alert and aware with cybersecurity. There's a whole bunch of different topics. Uh, if you've ever been interested in improving your physical, personal, emotional, mental capacity, uh, there will be a show for you on Primed by Joe Saunders. Now, that doesn't mean the Managing Violence podcast is going anywhere. We are sticking around. Uh, the formatting of the show may change. Uh, I don't ever want to get to a point where I am releasing a boring show just because I'm trying to hit a deadline. So uh, it's possible that the show will be a little bit more sporadic, uh, but as I record interviews with guests, they will be uploaded. I still have a stack of guests 
that I have arranged interviews with or that I've agreed to be interviewed that we just haven't managed to nail down time for yet. So as those are recorded, they will be released. Uh, I'm not going to commit to a to a release schedule at this point, uh, just because, as I said, I don't want to ever be scrambling to hit a deadline and give you a subpar show. I'd rather have the best experts with the best stories and the best quality show we possibly can. So every time you hit download, you know what you're getting. All right, that's it for today. Welcome to 2020. Hope you've had a wonderful relaxing break and you are ready to get after it in the new decade. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Managing Violence podcast. Alternatively, I will catch you on the Presilience podcast and primed by Joe Saunders. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Managing Violence podcast. For more information or to listen to previous episodes, please check out www.josaunders.com.au or visit us on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Don't forget to rate and subscribe so you never miss a show.